Now that verse, uh, Acts 7, 60, is very similar to the last things Jesus said before it is finished. Which is, uh, Lord, don't hold the sin against them, is what Stephen said when they were stoning him. He's the first martyr of the early church. And one of the last things Jesus said as he was being tortured to death was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So, the giant ugly elephant in the room for me every year on this day is that it's September 11th. And I almost never talk about September 11th on purpose. And honestly, it's because I have feelings about it, as does everyone else. Now, for some of you, you're young enough that all you know is it's what your parents talk about. And, eh. Or maybe you know all kinds of experiment or conspiracy series or series. What is wrong with my speech? Conspiracy theories. Sorry, I made a television show about it in my head for just a second. Maybe you know conspiracy theories about how, I don't know, diesel fuel can't melt steel or some business like that. And to be totally honest, I don't care about those theories a bit. They do no good in my life. I get mildly agitated when people try to solve riddles that aren't there in that case, because oddly enough, when I joined the army, it was in the time of peace. We were actually in a time of peace. Now granted, still joined the army, I get it, but it was in a time of peace. By the time I got out of training, we were in two wars. I watched the Twin Towers fall locked in a barracks while still in training with a room full of other guys about my age with similar haircuts, very similar haircuts and dress attire. And we sat there locked in a room, really not speaking, except for the one guy next to me whose cousin was at work in the World Trade Center that day. I still have no idea if she ever got out because I never spoke to him again after that day. I never had the opportunity. So my memories of September 11th are a little different than yours maybe. None of us have really pleasant memories unless it's your birthday on September 11th, in which case I'm very sorry that this is how people talk about your birthday. Or your anniversary, you're absolutely correct. Which we can praise God for that, and we should. But I also remember as soon as all the stuff was coming to a, a closing as far as, you know, live action coverage. We had a man in a round brown hat, which we always called drill sergeant. Oddly enough, he had the same name as every other guy that dressed like him. Pulled us out into the yard, sat us all down on the yard, which was weird to begin with because that's not a very military thing to do sat us all down out on the yard and told us how lucky we were because we would have the opportunity to fight for our country. So, on September 11th, I realized that most of my adulthood traumas 
are actually related to this day. So for me, it's a very heavy day. Although I had good friends whose anniversary it was, so Willis and Nancy's anniversary is on September 11th, and happy anniversary. But I've noticed a trend also in Mennonite America is around this time, it's really, we spend a lot of time focusing on what our reaction probably should have been as a nation. Because like I said, we ended up in two wars almost immediately after. I spent some time in one of those. And I can tell you, there's no good guys. There's just guys. The good guys were my friends. That's the only thing that made them the good guys. And some of them genuinely were good guys. Some of us were genuinely bad guys. But I noticed the trend is, because I'm a Mennonite pastor, is I should be talking about what a nation's response should be. Should it be peaceful? And what does that look like? And I actually affirm that. But I think part of that also, after 21 years of realizing that maybe things could have went differently, there's more to forgiveness than forgiving the people that hurt you initially, I think is just to maybe forgive yourself and move on. Because we can keep kicking ourselves over these things, or we can keep bad-mouthing the decisions that were made by particular people. And if you ever want to hear me bad-mouth politicians, I am happy to do it, you know, not from up here. But I'm happy to do it. You, you name whoever. I don't, I will, doesn't matter to me. Jesus is my king. I happen to have a president. I had a president before him. There was another guy before him, and I can say that all day long almost. There was a lot of presidents, and there was a lot of vice presidents. And I don't actually find any of the vice presidents overly fascinating except for the first one because he shot a man. <laughs> so he was actually more infamous than famous. But thinking about when things don't go right towards us and we react, because that's the human thing to do, correct, is to react as a nation, but also as an individual, right? We react. And sometimes it gets to the point where it's easy to forgive the person that hurt you, or you get to the place where you're ready to forget the people, the group, the nation that hurt you. But then you still beat up on yourself or you beat up on us, you know? There was a really interesting question that was asked at the last All Pastors Gathering we had for Ohio Conference. And it was honestly a really simple question. You've heard it before. Now what? Right? You have the what happened, 
You might try to figure out the why, but what's really important is now what? And it applies to almost all walks of life. Well, now what? Jesus saved me. Good. Now what? I got married. Sweet. Now what? I forgave the person that hurt me. That's awesome. Now what? What now? What now for that relationship? What now for that situation? I think when I was studying reconciliation, one of the things that they noticed is forgiveness isn't saying it's okay. Forgiveness is understanding the problem and moving past it. That's reconciliation, is understanding the problem and then moving past it. You don't have to be okay with everything that happens, because you can't be. It's impossible. I am not okay with people flying planes into buildings. I think that's pretty universal. Most of us are not okay with that. And I understand that the world has consequences. If you do something, people are going to react. You have to understand that. That's cause and effect. That's pretty easy to understand. That is human nature. That is actually physics, too. But cause and effect is a very real thing. But if you're looking for actual reconciliation, if you're looking to have a healthy moving forward, you kind of just have to accept what is and what was. And you have to decide, now what? Right? What, what do you want? Do you want peace? Do you want harmony? What is it that you actually want? I think that's a really great question that I can ask myself. And last week, I felt weird because I didn't intend to do it, but I said, uh, coming to terms with forgiving an abuser, because that's something I've had to do in my life. So I, did, I admit it, I was abused, okay? Not by my parents, so don't confront them, please. Awesome people. They really are. They're godly people. Part of that forgiving process, though, was... And I didn't realize I was even doing it at the time, but asking myself, well, now what? Well, obviously, they're not going to babysit my child. That's obvious. Short of that, though, what was my expectation? What did I actually want? What did I want? At first, really, the only thing I wanted was to be sociable, cordial. And I can say genuinely, I want what's best for that person. I really do. But that was a long journey in itself with several steps, because once you find the now what, then you have to ask, well, now what? It's a never-ending question. I am so easily distracted. Please forgive me. I just noticed Ella's hair bow thingy, and I'm like, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. It's good we don't preach outside. I would be 
distracted by every squirrel and moving leaf. So what do you what do we want from our enemies if we have enemies? As, and I'm I'm asking this as a broad question, as a narrow question, however it's hitting you. What is it we actually want from from our enemies, for our enemies, right? Do you need them to grovel? Do you need them to make reparation? Do you need them to die? What is it that you actually think you need? And that's a real question. What is it we feel we need? And then the next question after that is, is that okay? (laughs) Because honestly, just because someone cuts in front of me at Subway does not mean they deserve to die. If someone hurts your friends or family, do they deserve to die? That's really not for me to say. I'm talking about some dark stuff this morning, and these kids are just being cute. That's what I love about kids so much. Because you can be in the darkest part of your brain. Look at that plaid shirt right there. Look at him look over the back of the pew. Seriously, can you think of anything in your life other than Jesus Christ that's more important? than that right there. That's amazing. Sorry, again with the squirrels, right? Um, I'm going to actually read from Luke 6 about what Jesus says to us, right? But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you, which is more realistic in our society, probably. Right? I've had very few enemies as an adult, partially because I choose to love Jesus, and Jesus told me I had to love people. I'm getting better at it. It's like anything else. If you practice it, you get better at it. I'm getting better at loving people. It is not a natural reaction for me, but I genuinely love people. And that's Jesus, not me. That's Jesus at work in me. Because I don't have to fake it. I am genuinely happy to see Pam and Evan and Kyle and the rest of you. I just picked them. They're not not the only people I'm happy to see. Anyway, but I've been cursed out a lot. And I probably will continue to be because I have one of those personalities, one of those faces, one of those weird builds. I don't know. I bring it out in people. I'm big enough that it's an accomplishment to take me down a few pegs, but I don't look scary enough that people hold back from doing it. I don't know what it is. But if there was a room full of angry people looking for somebody to cuss out, I have a feeling that a lot of them would choose me. And that's more experiential than anything. Mostly working with fast food because you wouldn't believe how many good people value French fries more than a person behind a counter. Don't be that person, by the way. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them their other also. A slap is an insult, right? That's not a closed-fisted thing. A slap is insulting. I'm borrowing someone else's joke, but even when slaps were fashionable, you had a gunfight right afterwards. Slaps are meant to be insulting. It's, again, putting someone in their place. But if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you turn your other cheek to them. Rob had a great teaching about that in Sunday school. I'm not going to repeat it, but it was very good. Feel free to corner him after the service and have him explain it to you. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. This is an interesting conundrum, and I'm not trying to shame your point of view. I just want you to think about it. When people find out you're a pacifist, provided that you are a pacifist, many of us are, if you are genuinely a pacifist or non-resistant, people find that shocking and sometimes offensive, which my first response is, I'm a veteran. If I don't believe in violence, I fought for the right not to hurt people, which is a stupid thing to say. It's half a joke, although jokes are funny, so maybe it's not a joke. Nobody laughed. Um... (laughs) But the first thing people attack with their words are, well, someone's trying to hurt your family. That's never happened. Literally, it's never happened. I'm not going to live in fear of a bunch of things that have never happened. For starters. Secondly, I'm a pacifist. The dog might not be. I'm not worried about it. You can trust in horses and chariots. I can trust in the Lord my God, right? The second thing people say, well, if someone came into my house and was trying to steal my television, I'd shoot them. Really? Over a television set. Now, you can say there's other issues at work, but I want us all to really think about this. You would shoot somebody over a television set? You would shoot somebody over your wedding photos. I don't know anybody that's stealing those, but they might. Could be one of those smash and grab things. I don't know. I'm definitely not killing anybody over my outdated CD collection. And the only reason I know it's outdated is because it's on CD. Why do we put so much value on stuff and so little on life? Lives. Lives? Lives. Yes. Why do we put such little value on human life? See, the thing I understand is when someone says, I would do anything to protect my family. I understand. When someone says, I'll do anything to protect my stuff. We should view that as weird. It's stuff. It's going to break or you're going to replace it tomorrow. If you have nice stuff, it's not going to be good enough in a month. Honestly, they're going to come out with new Jordans and iPhones and everything else. It's going to be obsolete next year anyway. Who cares? You're going to kill somebody over that stuff? Wow. Anyway, if someone takes your coat, though, give them your shirt. Shouldn't matter. It's stuff. Give to everyone who asks of you. If anything takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
That's a really old teaching. In fact, in every other religions, though, it's worded slightly different. Every other teaching says don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus taught do to people what you want them to do to you. It sounds like the exact same thing, but it's a step further. Not only do you not do what you don't want to happen to you, you actually go that extra step and you do what you want to happen for you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. I have a feeling bankers don't like this passage as much as I do. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now it's easy for me to say, that if someone wrongs me, they should be shown mercy. If someone wrongs us, they should be shown mercy. And I can even apply that to a national level. That's easy for me to say. What about someone who acts outside the will of that then? If you feel that the response to an injustice was in fact unjust or unjust. Should we not also extend mercy in that direction? It's a thought. I also believe we should call out injustices when we see them. I think we're obligated to speak truth when we know it. I'm going to flip over to Ephesians 4. which is called Instructions for Christian Living. Verse 17 is where you'll find that heading if you have the same version of the Bible as I do. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. No longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. What does the world around us occupy their time with? Sub-question. Is it any different than the stuff that you occupy your time with? It's a real question. If I say that my religion is Christianity, and I do say that, some people will go, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Actually, it's both. I have no problem calling it a religion. I'm a very religious person. I love my religion. 
which is a personal relationship with Jesus. So I don't mind people saying the other thing either. But there's been times in my life, and you know this when you see me from the side, that my religion has been food. It's been what I spent my time and my energy and my effort and my longing and my every heart's desire. And I know that sounds sick and twisted because it probably is. There's been times in my life when my religion was probably food. There's been times in my life where my religion was a pack of cigarettes. There's been times in my life when my religion was not in line with what I said it was. Or I was worried about buying stuff. Or I wanted that special guitar. You know the one. Maybe you don't. If you play guitar, you have a guitar you wish you had. If you like cars, you have a car you wish you had. Actually, if you're a dude, you probably have this car that you wish you had. 66 Mustang, cherry red, preferably. That's just me. If you're a Corvette guy, that sounded like nonsense. What am I living for? Stuff. Meaningless, futile stuff. I'm not supposed to be living like that anymore. That's Gentile nonsense. Now granted, I'm not Jewish, so I get that I'm a Gentile in that way. But what scripture is talking about is don't be living like lost people anymore. You don't have to. I'm not saying don't have nice stuff. Don't live for stuff. It's all going away. Sorry. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. If we did an honest evaluation of ourselves based on verses 17, 18, and 19, what changes would you be ready to make today? You're like, I'm not ready to make those changes today. Congratulations, you're not ready to make those changes tomorrow either. Going back to my last illustration, for those of us that have planned to start a diet on Monday, it becomes very clear over time that we never indicate which Monday. My father-in-law has a joke I love. He says, I'm on two diets. I wasn't getting enough food on one. Have we lost sensitivity? Like, we don't treat people well. Culturally, we do not treat people well. Right? If you're in a weird place you don't want to be, for example, Afghanistan. You can meet a tribal person in Afghanistan that 
has never met you before in their life. They're going to shake your hand and they're going to say their Arabic phrase for, uh, what is it, I breathe life into your soul, something like that. And then you respond because they taught you that phrase. And the first thing they do is they do this. If they're actually happy to meet you. They do this to show you, this warms my heart. I'm happy to meet you. This is a malodorous desert person who I've never met before is pleased to meet me. And after a while, every once in a while, I found myself doing the same thing back at them, right? When I got home, I think the first thing my very best friend said to me, and I'll church it up a little, is, sup, loser? It's my best friend in the world. That's just a cultural example of maybe we're a little calloused to the point where phrases are elevated to be, I don't know, that make us seem tougher. I don't need anybody. Really? Because that's actually like a psychiatric condition. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Were that true, you wouldn't have to convince me. That isn't a badge of honor. That's sad. We don't hug each other. Some of us are germaphobes, that's fine. I'm not gonna stretch you that far, that's okay. You can wave at me. We don't hug each other. We don't shake each other's hands hardly. When we ask how the other person's doing, we come up with silly slogans to answer the person. Living the dream. I'm winning. What are you winning? I don't know, man. How are you doing? Great. Really? I was pretty sure you were just crying over there. How scary would that be if you answered each other honestly? How are you doing? Man, I'm broken. I'm so broken today. Everything hurts. I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of people wouldn't be ready for that, and it would be a really short conversation. Now, pretend you're the person who comes up to someone and asks how they're doing today, and they answer you like that. How quickly are you going to try to get away from that conversation? because we're not emotionally equipped to deal with it. But I think it's because we lack the sensitivity. We, we, lack, we lack the sensitivity due to the hardening of our hearts. I've known some very godly men who are actually quite masculine that actually care about people's feelings. And it seems so out of reality, though. Because when you think of a sensitive, caring man, you think of like Mr. Rogers, and that's it. Mr. Rogers was cool, but he was an anomaly. There was one of them. Right? There should be something somewhere oh, I don't know, maybe the church where we could look around the room and see masculine, godly men that actually care about the people around them. 
or maybe a dinner table at home where you could look to, I don't know, the head of the table and see a decent masculine man who cares that isn't totally shut off from his feelings. Now, this is the way my brain works. And if you disagree with me, there's probably research to tell me I'm wrong. But I have this theory that if the table at home had that at it, then the church would be full of guys just like that, which would eventually spread out from the church and kind of be in the community because none of us live in a vacuum. I've read examples of that happening. I'd like to see it in person. I'm moving on to verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. The hardest thing on earth to do is to put off your old self. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. I love that verse. I'll finish the verse, but then I'm coming back to the beginning of it. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. You know what I love so much about that verse? In your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. God gave you this full spectrum of emotions. One of them is anger. In your anger, don't sin. It's possible. It would be impossible if, if the Bible said, don't be angry. Well, you're going to get angry. Some things are really unjust. I saw some yesterday. Not going to tell that story. I'm already going on long enough, I'm sure. I saw some uh, examples of people angry yesterday. Some of them sinned very loudly for the whole world to hear. I was at a horse show, by the way. If you've ever been to a horse show, I don't need to explain. It's like dance moms. It's weird. It's weird. It's a fun little sub subculture of really weird. Anyhow. <laughs> I said putting on your former way of life is the hardest thing you'll ever do. And that kind of goes back to what I said near the beginning of this rambling. When it's really hard to forgive yourself. It's easy to forgive other people compared to how hard it is to forgive yourself. Because with everybody else, you can at least find a loophole. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't know what they were doing. With myself... I am quite confident that I knew exactly what I was doing and I did it anyway. 
And that can be quite hard to forgive. can be quite hard to forgive. But you know the interesting thing about not forgiving myself is I'm withholding forgiveness, even if it's just to myself. One of those things that's implied in a verse like love your neighbor as yourself, you actually have to kind of like yourself. And you can't really love yourself if you're bitter and hateful to yourself. This sounds like a weird circular self-help speech. I know that. I have some people you can call to blame. They've been telling me this for a couple years now. Sorry, that was a therapy joke. Um, although therapy has not been a joke. It's something I never believed in. Honestly, I never believed in therapy. I thought it was a waste of time. There's even times in my life where I would have thought it was sinful. Not a joke. I avoided therapy. I, in fact, first thing I told my therapist when the BA finally made me see one. I don't believe in therapy. This is a waste of our time. But you won't give me the medication I need unless I agree to come to therapy. To which she said, I understand. And now two years later, I'm still in therapy and I'll say it works way better than the medication did, which was, eh, doesn't work as well as my blood pressure meds. I'll tell you that. Cause if I don't take my blood pressure meds, I know almost instantly. But in that process, I had to swallow a lot of pride. A year ago, I wouldn't have told you I was in therapy. Two years ago, I wouldn't have said anybody should be in therapy. Ten years ago, I would have said, well, don't you know Jesus can heal you? Honestly, that would have been my answer. I spent a long time pretending to be healed instead of getting help and becoming healed. And I have to forgive myself for being wrong. Not about Jesus. Jesus can heal you. He is the healer. His method of healing you may look a little different. But learning to forgive myself. Learning to forgive people I'm associated with. Not beating them up emotionally or physically, but emotionally for things that are done. We recognized a wrong. Sometimes it was me. Sometimes it was someone else. We recognize it was wrong. Sometimes it was both of us. Sometimes I'm really wrong about being right. Made a life practice out of that one. Sometimes I'm the one that's wrong and it isn't groveling that makes it okay. And it's not giving gifts and it's not whatever. You can't change what's already happened. No one can. You can never change what already happened, right? What you can do though, is you can read your Bible, 
see what God told us to live like as Christians, because that's probably where you're going to want to start. And then the next thing you should do is ask your questions. Who, what, when, where, how? Which will lead you to now what? Now what? I really hurt somebody. Okay, now what? Well, I need to I need to make it better. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can't make it right. Now what? Do you ignore the situation? Do you reach out and say, hey, I recognize I was wrong. I have an expectation. I would like to, I don't know, whatever your situation is. Now what? I think that could actually work on a national level. But here's the interesting thing. We don't live in a Christian nation. We don't, actually. The Founding Fathers made it very clear we don't have a national religion because they saw the abuse other countries were doing. That's why we have freedom to worship. It's not the same thing, right? At one point, we were a nation majorly of Christians. Nominally, we probably still are, but it's not the same thing. We can't expect... Caesar to not act like Caesar. The people in charge may or may not be reading their Bibles at all. (laughs) But the United States of America has never been, nor will ever be God's chosen people to live physically on earth. Neither is Canada or Ireland or any other of the cool countries I got to actually see in my life. Seen some I didn't like. Canada's cool. I like Canada. But they're not God's chosen nation either. Neither is Australia. If that was God's chosen nation, they wouldn't live in a place where everything's poisonous. The church is God's chosen people on earth. We are the holy nation, right? That is, that is the church, and only the church. So when our country reacts badly, or a different country reacts badly, or if a country just acts badly, we've seen plenty of that. Why would we expect any less? If you read the end of the book, I have no idea why you would expect anything less. If you read the front of the book, I have no idea why you would expect anything less. People are people and have always been people. And they do horrible things and they do sinful things. And here we are in the middle of it, watching it from all sides, having opinions about which Caesar would do a better job, fighting with each other about politics. You know what I tell my sixth graders? Poly means many, right? Ticks are parasitic bloodsuckers. Pretty much the only thing I teach them about politics. Many parasitic bloodsuckers. And that's a joke, okay? 
We're supposed to pray for our leaders. We need leaders, clearly. God didn't design the world to live in anarchy. But we should stop looking for the world to cure problems. By very definition, the world isn't acting according to what God wants. To expect it to is naive. And I can be just as naive as the next person. I have things I'd like to see happen in society. We'll talk about them when I'm not up here. Because how I vote, how I view, how I, it does not matter to the fact that Jesus Christ is the king of the world. And that's what I need to be proclaiming from up here. And that Jesus wants us to forgive and to love our enemies and to love our neighbors and to love the sojourner among us and to love the foreigner. And you're not able to do that if all you care about is being right. Because as I've said, I've already made a life's practice of being very wrong about being right. If you can do so without pain, would you please stand with me? Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you've called us to be your people. I thank you for the blessings, just all these blessings that you've given, all these things that we could not earn. Father God, I pray that you would help us to see you working in our lives, that you, we would see the blessings around us, that you would teach us to love one another. Father God, I pray that you would forgive me for all the times I don't extend mercy when I should. Father God, I praise you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's not in your bulletin because I wasn't sure based on how the week was playing out whether both individuals would be here today, but we do have two people who have agreed to cast lot for the position of elder. Now, if you've never seen people cast lots, it might look weird. Trust me, you've done it in some form or fashion, probably. But what we're doing is that we're praying that God would direct the right person to grab the correct Bible up here. Um, one of the Bibles has a marking on side that I, I think just says, it's you. The other ones have X's. And you'll notice the last several times that we cast lot for elder, no elder was selected. I really hope that it isn't what happens today because I like that elder table at our meetings to have another body at it, to be totally honest. I really do. But God has reasons for things. And if I can even pretend to understand the mind of God, I'm fooling myself. But the people who have uh, were highly nominated and have agreed to be considered for the position are Mike Catalfew and Garrett King. And uh, at this time, if we can have the elders that we do have, Chad is our elder and so is Albert. If I can have the two nominees come up here, we're gonna pray for them. And then we're gonna have them select a Bible.
And if it's the one that says it's you, you have to deal with this for three years in leadership. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. It's a blessing. Ask anyone that's done it. It is a huge blessing. But it's not without moments. <laughs>